All right, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to read the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 2, a very familiar story. You sang about it this morning. Uh, many of you know this story, but let's listen again to what uh, God has to say to us through, through Luke. Luke chapter 2, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary as betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And an angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is, the, this is God's word. You, uh, you may be seated. So we're, we're in this series. We're just taking these four Sundays of Advent to talk about really some basic truths that emerge for us um, out of that find their fulfillment, their genesis, we might say, in uh, the Christmas story. What I don't mean by this is that these are truths where we ought to feel some emotion at this time of the year, but these are truths that we see really come to the forefront in this story, in the story of Christmas and what Jesus promises, God promises us through Jesus, through Christmas. And so we want to just take these four Sundays. We've looked at hope and we We've looked at love, and we're going to look at joy, and we're going to look at uh, peace next week and, and see why, why these are causes for these, these really massive things of hope, love, joy, peace uh, in our lives. Now, we read through the passage, but I want to I help us understand. I want to spend most of our time looking at verses 8 through 12. But I, I want to make sure you understand where this comes from and kind of, again, like last week, where it sits and, and, and really what leads up to verses 8 and 9 in this angelic announcement, okay? So uh, it, it, uh, there's a couple of things. Let me just sort of summarize some things that are happening in verses 1 through 7, okay? The first thing I want you to notice about verses 1 through 7 is that I think Luke is really determined that you understand this is a historical fact, now, why do I say that? Look at how he does this. He names names. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius. Uh, he names Joseph and Mary. He talks about Joseph being of the line of David. He names cities like, like Bethlehem and Judea and Nazareth. And, and, and I mean, in other words, he's, he's trying, he, he names a place. They laid him in a manger. There was no place for him in the inn in Bethlehem. In other words, um, if you maybe you, you when you were growing up in high school or junior high or something, you had some segment on Greek mythology, right? In Greek mythology, the gods Zeus and others that you know they talk to each other. The wars go on, and and it's very obvious. Like nobody has ever seen any of these places. You know, if you're Norse mythology and Valhalla and places like this, these are this is a very 
earthy thing. He's saying, in other words, Luke is in some sense challenging us, challenging Theophilus to say, look, if you don't believe me, go check this out. These are historical facts. This comes right out of history. You can go visit these places. You can verify that Caesar Augustus is a real person. You can verify when the census, when the registration took place under Quirinius. All these things are there for you to go look out and check for yourself. This is historical fact. That's what he wants you to know, okay? But the second thing uh, I think he wants us to see is kind of what's going on behind all of this. So if I think about that, like, like look, at, look at verse 1 again. What seems like a very random decree given by uh, Caesar. In those days, uh, a decree goes out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was during the you know during when Quirinius was governor of uh, Assyria. So here's the timing. Here's exactly what happened, and and it feels like oh, so Caesar just gave this decree. He just sort of feels random, and all right, that's good that that happened. But but boy. I hope what you're going to see by the time we end is this isn't random at all. There's something cosmic going on here, okay? Now, and the reason I say that is that, that, that it, what, what, what Caesar doesn't know is what he just set in motion. Uh, Bethlehem is a key city in biblical prophecy. Bethlehem is a, just so you, I shouldn't say city. I, I don't even know that we have an equivalent or any of us would know of equivalent. This is like a town with one stop sign and maybe not even a gas station, right? This is a town that doesn't have a grocery store or a bank or a post office. This is a tiny hamlet. This is maybe a hundred people living in trailers way out in the country, right? It's that kind of place. It's this backwater town. Okay, so this isn't some massive, bustling metropolis. It's this little tiny town, and yet this town plays a key role in biblical prophecy. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Okay, so that prophecy is essentially saying this, that the Messiah, God, very God, will be born in Bethlehem. But there's a problem. Because, because the one that we've heard about, if you're reading Luke, you discover Mary, you know, the angel shows up to Mary and you're with child and the child is going to be the Savior. You hold the Messiah in your womb right now. But Mary is up north in the city of Nazareth in Galilee. She's not down in Bethlehem. So somehow God, if you will, we could say has a problem. God's got to get Mary and Joseph from, from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. So what will happen, right? Is this enough? Is geography enough to thwart biblical prophecy? Is the Roman Empire enough to thwart biblical prophecy? Can, can Caesar Augustus, can pregnancy, can any of these things? And the answer, of course, is no. God's going to move everything. Now think about this. If you need to get, if you need to get two seemingly insignificant people from one city to another and you're God, there's lots of ways to do that. And God chooses to move upon the heart of the most powerful man in the world to issue a worldwide decree that will cause and I mean this 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 cascading, this domino effect of things to come into play. Think of all the things that had to happen. 
And this is all God behind the scenes. So he says he moves upon the heart of Caesar. Caesar now, now uh, sends out a, a, uh, a decree that all the world, all the Roman world would be registered. Why is he doing that? Well, that some of your translations say census. There's going to take a census. Caesar doesn't just want to know how many people are in his empire. He wants to know, am I getting the right amount of tax, right? Am I getting the funds that, are, that should be coming to me? And so he, he does this because of his, of his own selfish ambitions. So the selfish ambitions of a tyrant, we might say, are servants in the hand of a sovereign God moving and causing things to go where he wants them to go, right? This seemingly insignificant decree causes the movement of, of, of an empire. It causes the movement of Quirinius in that region. It causes them to go to Nazareth and say, here's what's happening. So then Joseph goes, I've got to get to Bethlehem. He takes Mary. She's pregnant, brings her with him. All because of God. One of my favorite verses in scripture, and some of you need to know this as we enter an election cycle. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Do you know this? Do you know there's never been a king, a ruler, a president, an emperor, a dictator ever that his heart was in? Now hear me, this does not mean they love Jesus. It means they're servants. They will stay within the boundaries that God has determined for them. He is utterly, totally sovereign, ruling over every part of human history. That ought to comfort you. That ought to be profoundly comforting for those of you that are either disturbed or elated in one way or the other about the state of our political climate, right? God is in control of all of that. Now, so here's what I want you to see. What's happening in verses 1 through 7 is, is Luke saying every part of this is according to a plan. This decree for all the world, Mary's pregnancy, Bethlehem, they get down there. Mary is at that certain place in her pregnancy. They get to Bethlehem and find that all the motels are flashing no vacancy signs. There's no room anywhere. All this is according to the plan of God. The manger, the feeding trough is God's idea. Every bit of it. So, so, so what, what we're not supposed to see here is random fate. We sing that song every year. Someday soon we all will be together if the fates allow. I hope you change that word if you're a Christian. There's no such thing as fate. It's the Lord's sovereign hand that you're supposed to see here. God's sovereignly moving and directing things. He wants them to go. He does it. He controls every part of it. Now look at A God who controls the Caesars of the world. Surely he could make sure that there was a motel room open. Right? And he doesn't. Why? Because that's his design. I want my son to enter humanity on the lowest rung. I want him to be born in a manger. You know what manger? By, by the way, some of us have you know, your crush scenes at home. They're very quaint, aren't they? They're lovely, in fact. They seem like, man, I'd love to live there. That would be amazing. So rustic and nice, right? This is, a, this is an animal pen. 
right? Manger sanitizes the word for it, right? It's a feeding trough. It's a, it's a you know, if you were to go to Bethlehem today or Israel, they would, they would want to take you over to Bethlehem and you'd see the fields and they would take you and go, okay, here's probably what a manger looked like. They're not saying it's the manger, but it's a cave, and it's a cave that you just would shove all your livestock into. There might be a part carved out in the back that has a place where the animals can eat and their slobbery faces can get in there and drink water, right? That's what's happening. This is where Jesus is born. And it's all intentional. This is God saying oh, every part of this is planned. Every part of this has a purpose. And in fact, what you're going to notice as you read through the New Testament is this is God's, this is Christ's M.O. Christ's M.O. is to live a life of utter suffering, servanthood, and humiliation. So he's going to launch his ministry. And he's going to say things like this. Foxes have holds. Birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't even have a home. Paul's going to look back in that very famous hymn to Christ in Philippians chapter 2 and remember the life of Christ and say, okay, church, okay, Christian, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. This downward spiral like, I will enter on the lowest rung of humanity. That's what I'm doing. So, so, okay, so back up. What's verses 1 through 7 telling us? That the God who rules empires and emperors and the timing of pregnancies and where people are is the same God, right, who rules over motel vacancies and things like that. Why? Why? Paul's going to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, for our sake, for our sake, he who is rich became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. What's he? He's not talking about worldly wealth. He's not talking about having mansions and, and fancy cars. He's saying he's going to give you true riches. He's going to give you what you cannot buy. He's going to give you things that, that, that he's going to give you eternity and a home in heaven. I loved, I don't know if you were here last week and you heard that, the, the, the testimony of the Acts 29 uh, family uh, over in England talking in, in, in Wales and, and the woman who said, like, I don't know what to do when people come to me and they have such hardship and I can't tell them, Jesus is going to take away all your hardship right now. Here's what I can tell you, that you're going to get heaven and someday you're going to find a better city than Cardiff. You're going to be in a better place than Glendora. You're going to be in a better place in this earthly world. He did it all for us, for our sake. Now, that's the backdrop. And then we get to verse 8. And now, watch, okay? So, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Okay, now, let's pause. What's happening here? Uh, again, we're talking about a little hamlet, so what, what Luke, what God wants us to see is the connection between verses 1 through 7, and especially verse 7. She gave birth to a firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, a shepherd's pen, because there was no place for them in the inn. 
And then I get to verse 8, and there's the same region. A few blocks down, we might say, at the same time, there's shepherds out in this field, and they're watching over their flocks by night, and, and something happens. Okay, so, so Luke wants to make this connection between verses 7 and 8. He wants you to look and go, okay, the, a manger is a place a shepherd would be very familiar with. This is kind of home away from home. This is where they go. They know the sights. They know the sounds. They know the smells. And Jesus is going to be born there. And it's in that environment. Okay, now the stage is set. Now, angels, go. Go make the announcement. This is crazy. Go. Now that Jesus is at his lowest now that God has come in the form of a helpless baby, now that he's lying in a, in a feeding trough, in a disgusting, stinking hole of a place, now go make this announcement. It's amazing. And so what happens? And what I want you to see is I watch, if I can say it this way, watch the logic of the angelic announcement. Don't miss the joy, okay? Because there's a logic to what's going to be laid out here, Right? So, so look, at, look at it with me, verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord, Lord shone around them, and they were feel, uh, filled with great fear, and the angel said to them, fear not. Now let's stop there for a moment. Because I think one of the things we've got to do is talk about uh, a couple of, I want to, I want to uh, you know, notice a few phrases, but I, I want you to see the juxtaposition in this passage between fear and what God is really after, Okay. But first, notice this. He says, he says that the glory of the Lord shone around them. Do you see this? That, that, that phrase, glory of the Lord, you're going to find in Scripture. You could do a search on glory of the Lord in Scripture, and you'd find that most often that or a form of that occur about 95% of the time in the Old Testament. Every time it occurs, there's somebody that if, the, if the God's glory shows up, there is fear, there is terror, and it's justified. In fact, it's always, in some sense, there's never like, you shouldn't feel this way. It's always like, that's a perfectly reasonable response to what's going on. Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple, right? The glory of God filled the temple, he says. And, and I, I said, woe is me. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. See, the natural response to the glory of the Lord, the natural response is, is fear. Um. Okay, but, 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 but um, so, so here the, the angel shows up, this glory shows around him, but, but uh, this time they're going to say it's a little bit, this is the first time it happens in the New Testament, by the way, where you hear this, this phrase, uh, the glory of the Lord. Um, and then the angel's going to correct their misunderstanding about what it means. But let's talk about this. Fear. Fear is really a, a major subject, you might say, within what's happening here in Luke chapter 2. And, and it's the natural human response to, we could say, our, our, our sinfulness. Every one of us in this room harbors, carries around sin, whether it's overt or it's just the sinfulness of our own humanity, right? That is always the natural response in Scripture to uh, being confronted with the glory of the Lord. And let me say it this way. The more sinful you are, the more guilt you will feel. The more you are aware of your own sin, the more, the more sinful you know that you are, the, the more guilt you're going to feel. Like some of you 
you know, like you, you, you feel afraid. You're afraid of being found out. Some of you in this room right now, I don't know who you are, but I can guarantee you in a, in a group this size, there are some of you that are hiding things. You are fearful of a spouse finding out something, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. You're fearful of an employer finding out something. There's something that you are harboring and hiding that you're thinking, I wouldn't want anybody to know this. I'm terrified because this is sinful. I know what I'm doing is wrong. And now what's it going to mean that, I, that, that that gets flushed out? What would it mean to other people? But ultimately, what does it mean before a holy God? So there's a fear. Now I fear dying. Now I fear standing face to face in the front, uh, in front of a holy God. And, and this, this sin that's never been dealt with, I, I come to this point of reckoning, right? That's a terrifying thing. This is a really natural response. See, because I think, I don't, I, in fact, I'm quite sure, fear, if we will be introspective for just a moment, you, could, you would probably admit that fear is maybe the primary drive shaft of your entire life. There are so many things you do and don't do because you're afraid. Think about that. It's this drive shaft. Now look, you could say, well... Um, you know, people are motivated by money or they're motivated by sex or power or fame or whatever it is. No, all of those are secondary. All of those are motivated by something deeper. And usually it's fear. We're terrified of something. Um, my wife and I love, one of our favorite movies is the movie Moonstruck. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a it's a, a, I think it was 1987, shares in it, Olympia Dukakis, won an Academy Award. But uh, there's this subplot. It's this Italian family living in Brooklyn. It's a very Italian ethnic movie, probably why we love it. But it's, it's so interesting. But the, one of the, the, the matriarch of the family, her, her name is Rose Cantorini. And, and her subplot is essentially this. She finds out that her husband is cheating on her. He's seeing this other woman. Their marriage has sort of grown old and tired. They've been together, it seems like, just forever. Their house feels stale. Everything's sort of drab, right? And so the husband starts running off and chasing another woman secretly. Rose finds out she's on to him. And her subplot is that she goes around and asks this question. Why do men chase women? She asks everybody she can run into contact. Why do men chase women? Why do men chase women? Why do men chase women? And she finally gets her answer, and she stumbles upon it, and then it's affirmed by another guy in the movie. She says, it's because they fear death. Now, <laughs> I think she's on to something. Right? She understands, the writers understand that, that, that chasing like that is not primarily a sexual thing. It's primarily a fear thing. I'm afraid of being irrelevant. I'm afraid of growing old. I'm afraid of dying. This tells me I'm alive. Right, right? That fear and insecurity are universal drivers. They're this thing that drive all of us to do things. I mean, we don't do things. We do things all because of fear. Think about this. Now, by the way, advertisers know this, right? They know 
where your primary motivations lie. So what do they do? They prey on your fears. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, you have to have this alarm system, otherwise you'll be, you know, the burglar will come in and murder you in the night. Well, sure, that's an obvious fear that they're going to try and, 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 and attach to. But I'm talking about even like fears like, like um, your, your fear of not living the good life, fear of missing out, fear that if you don't have this, then, then you're not, you know, going to be going to have some certain status, right? It's all based on fear. It's all like I'm just afraid. But, but we don't need advertisers to do what our hearts naturally do. Everybody in here naturally feels afraid of things. We, we, we fear being insignificant. We fear missing out. We fear not having the good life. We fear uh, what's going to happen to the economy. We fear what's going to happen in Washington, D.C. We fear what's going to happen in the world. We fear what people think of us. We fear what people don't think of us. We fear what's going to happen to our children. How much of our parenting, let's be honest, how much of parenting is motivated by fear? They've got to be involved in this or that or not be involved in that. I've got to choose this. Why? Because at the end of the day, I'm afraid my kid won't be successful. I'm afraid the C in kindergarten means no more Harvard. Right? I'm just, I'm terrified what's going to happen. So I helicopter over my kids. I hover over them. I make sure everything is just so. Why? Because at the end of the day, I'm terrified of what will happen to them, and I'm afraid of how that reflects on me. I'm afraid I don't have enough money in my, my uh, 401k. I'm afraid of being mediocre. I'm afraid, I'm afraid. Do I keep, need to keep going? Do I keep, that's enough? <laughs> right? This is so universal. And then what happens when religion steps in to that sphere? It doesn't make it better. It makes it worse, doesn't it? Every religion in the world. Do you know this? Every religion in the world, save Christianity, has as its primary motivation fear. Because why? God's up there, out there. Your job is to figure out how to get up to him. Your job is to do all these things that will build up your spiritual resume, allow you to climb the ladder, get your way all up there, and then God will accept you. This is every religion. This is Islam's five pillars. This is Judaism and the law. This is, this is Buddhism and enlightenment and Hinduism. This is Jehovah's Witnesses. This is Mormonism. Every single one of them say, you, you have to reach up to God, here's the standard, you're not there, and you probably won't get there. What does that do to you? You, you live with a kind of primal fear. I, I think everybody naturally, maybe we could even say God has hard, hardwired into our hearts a desire for divine approval. I want to know that something transcendent, that God accepts me and I can't seem to get there. The angel comes and says what? Fear not. There has never been an angelic or divine visitation in any other religion that told you not to fear, ever. 
they all say, you should be terrified. And the angel says, fear is not the appropriate response. Why? Okay, again, let's follow the logic. Fear not. Okay, now keep going. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now, let me, let me tackle one more phrase here. In fact, one more word. You know the word behold? I bet none of you use the word behold this week in a sentence. <laughs> behold my car, right? <laughs> behold the meal for my family, right? We don't talk like this. Behold is a way in Scripture that the writer, that the, 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 the speaker, whoever it is, is taking, you ever done this to your kid, taking your face, grabbing it, and saying, don't look there, look there right? That's the idea behind behold. Don't look there. Look here. Don't fear. You're, you're focused right now on the, the terror of a holy God and you being sinful humanity in his presence, but look it over here. Let me show you something. Fear not. Now, why shouldn't I fear? For there's the reason. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Let me just say this. Again, I think you know this if you think about it. Now, first of all, uh, if we were to play the opposite game and I were to say, what's the opposite of up? You'd say down. If I were to say left, you'd say right. If I were to say big, you'd say small. If I were to say fear, nobody would answer joy. Good news of great joy. And yet this is these are the, the, the polar opposites in the angel's mind. Don't fear why. So I'm going to tell you something so joyful. So here, here's the thing. It is impossible. It is impossible for fear and joy to coexist. Do you know this? Right now, I'm not talking about, oh, I went to go see the, you know, go see it, and it scared me, and that was fun. Right? I like to be scared at not scary farm. Something like that, right? That, that's kind of this event. That's a moment. It's an adrenaline rush. Okay, that was fun. I'm talking about real fear. Like real fear is, is a child with cancer. Real fear of I might lose my job this week. But let's go beyond that. Real fear is I don't think I'm living up to God's demands for my life. I can't get there. That's terrifying. Fear not. And when the news is good enough, you know this? When the news is good enough, it vanquishes fear, right? Like real fear robs you of joy, but good news of great joy vanquishes fear. And by the way, notice he didn't say, he didn't say, I bring you good news of joy. He adds this little modifier in the front. We get our word mega from it. Mega joy. Massive, robust, durable, you know, incredible. That kind of joy. There, is a, there are kinds of joy that are so massive that it seems that everything else in our life becomes insignificant by comparison. That's the idea. 
It just sort of melts all these other circumstantial pressures of my life because now the massive one big thing that was, that was terrifying me, you know what? None of it matters because there's this big news of great joy. Now, what's the big news of great joy? Why is this good news? Okay, again, for he says, for I bring you, for behold, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of joy, of joy, great joy, which will be for all the people. Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who's Christ the Lord. You don't have to be afraid because there's a Savior who has stepped out of heaven and come down to you. So the ultimate fears you have like the biggest fears of your life of not having divine approval are satisfied in this one and it makes everything petty in comparison. So the writer Isaiah will say this, listen to this, just kind of breathe this in like fresh air. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. This is God talking. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Like how many of us need to hear that this morning? How does he come to be with us? Luke chapter 2. He sends his spirit to dwell in us. Fear not. Fear not. Little children, for I've given you the kingdom over and over. The word of Christ to us is fear not, because there's a Savior who's Christ the Lord. A Savior. Let's just focus on that for a minute. Be because there's one who will save you from your sin. There's one who will make right what you can't with God. There's one who has come down because you couldn't go up, Right? Last week, we look at John 3, 16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Wonderful verse. John 3, 18 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Sinful, fallen humanity. This is why Jesus came, in order that they might be saved. Is that you? Is that me? Right? I'm going to take care of this ultimate fear of yours. See, every other religion will exacerbate your fear, will amplify your fear, will take hold of that major, that, 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 that primary drive shaft of your heart and say, you can't get there. Keep trying, keep trying, but you'll never, ever arrive. Only Christianity says, you don't have to get there. Because Jesus came here. Amen. Fear not. There's a Savior. It's Christ the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's God, very God. Now, the angel, I, I think, probably knows what would happen if he stopped there and disappeared, right? So he doesn't. I mean, they would probably, all the shepherds would probably look at each other and go, did you just see what I see? Because I'm not sure it actually happened, right? So look at verse 12. And he's going to say, okay, how will they know this is true? How will they be able to verify that what the angel tells them? He says this, and suddenly, verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Okay, now, 
They just went from a Savior who is Christ the Lord down to a baby. That's shocking. But he keeps going. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths, and you're going to find him in a manger. That's what I mean by our problem is that the word manger sanitizes the truth of what's happening here. You're going to find him, guys, in a stinking, filthy, awful, rotten uh, uh, feeding trough. That's where you're going to find this Savior who is Christ the Lord. You're going you're to find him at a place that is astonishing to you. See, so we've heard this story so many times that we don't feel the scandal. We don't feel the amazement. We don't think, oh, that's, we think it's cute and quaint. It's not cute and quaint. It's disgusting. It's low. It's awful. It's a gutter. The Savior of the world, God, very God, the Messiah of Israel, will be found in an animal trough. Guys, go there. You can touch him. You can see him. See, this is how the Bible talks. That though he was in the form of God, right? Didn't consider equality with God. He came to us. This is how it talks in Hebrews. That our great high priest has now passed through the heavenlies. So now, because of that, we can approach the throne of God boldly in our time of need. We can walk up to God because of Jesus, because of what he's done, and say, Father, help me. And he's there, boldly. See, look, if you and I believe this, I mean, I don't mean, I don't mean this is a nice inspirational Christmas story. I might even think it's historically true. I mean, have I embraced this as reality? Do I really believe that I don't have to fear? Do I really believe that God has come in human flesh? He has come down to me because I couldn't make my way up to him. If I really believe that, it changes everything. That will change, that, let's say it this way, that will swap out the drive shaft of fear and put in a drive shaft of joy. These two polar opposites. You ever, you ever met somebody and say, man, that is a joyful person, met somebody else and thought they are really filled with fear? You would know if you compared those two, they are radically different people. Radically. Because one's being motivated. One, the drive shaft. One is, you know, gotten up on, 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 on you know, God's garage and he's, he's, he's swapped out. He's taken out that one, put in this one and said, man, now there's the operating system. This is what motivates you. Great joy. It'll change your marriage. It'll change your workplace. It'll change your neighborhood. It'll change your home. It'll change your family. It'll change your parenting. Because fear is not the primary motive. Joy is. Jesus came to bring us joy, not fear. Jesus came so that, the, so that God coming to us is a joyful thing, not a fearful thing of us working our way up to God. Joy to the world. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and I thank you. I thank you that Jesus, you, you, you had this sovereign plan, Lord, behind all of this is purpose, is planning, is you moving history to this point. Even this morning, God, there's nobody who would find themselves in this place by accident. You moved history up to this moment even. So now they've heard the good news. They've heard about what you do in salvation. And I pray today would be a day where you would swap out 
the drive shaft of fear and put in the, the drive shaft of joy. That it would vanquish really the deepest fears of our hearts. It doesn't say that you're going to remove all the temporal problems of our life, but the eternal ones are gone. The ones that really matter, the ones that affect us not just in this life, but in the life to come. So that it puts everything else under it in perspective. God, do that today, I pray. May there be people who through repentance and faith run to Jesus and are filled with joy because because Jesus, you've run to them first. We love you, God. We thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.